Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. William Urey. Some of you will be familiar with Urey because you took a conflict res class at some point in your life. And it's pretty hard to get through conflict res class without bumping into William Urey, one of the founders of the Harvard Project on Negotiation, among other things, a very established academic and, and big thinker about, about conflict resolution in particular. Anyway, he is, he is by academic training an uh, anthropologist and comes from that perspective. But, I mean, getting to peace, getting to yes, uh, getting past no to yes. Um, <clears throat> I think his most recent book, uh, 2012, I believe, is a book. I, I might not get the title right, but it's about getting to yes with yourself. Because one of the themes in Yuri's work around conflict res is that when it's all said and done, the person that's hardest to manage in a conflict resolution conversation is ourselves, and that's also who we have access to. <laughs> like That's where we've got some control in this situation. And getting ourselves into the space where we can actually pay attention to the things we need to pay attention to and not get distracted by the things that so naturally distract us in those conversations is, is essential. So... I'm going to start with a quote from the author's note at the beginning of Getting to Peace, the subtitle of which is Transforming Conflict at Home, at Work, and in the World. And um, we're not talking about conflict in particular, but in many ways what we're going to be working through this morning is about peace. Not in terms of a formal process for getting there, but in terms of how we reference history when it comes to how we might get there. That'll, that'll make better sense as we go, I hope. I'm going to be reading lots of other people's words this morning, which is lovely for me and maybe lovely for you too, because I, I feel like I've just got a couple of great sources here that I'm just going to offer to us as they are, and then we're going to talk about them together. So Yuri writes, I'm an anthropologist, a concerned anthropologist. I'm concerned because the tribe I study is in danger. While it is not at all unusual for an anthropologist to study an endangered tribe, this tribe is not foreign. It is my own. It is not a small band of people. It is the human tribe. The danger comes not from the outside world. It comes from the inside, from the human habit of falling into destructive, often deadly conflict whenever a serious difference arises between two people, two groups, or two nations. This book is a personal as well as a professional quest. As long as I can remember, I have always wondered about the question of how we can all get along despite our deep differences. Perhaps it was being raised with constant quarreling at the family dinner table. Perhaps it was going to school with children from 30 different nationalities and a dozen religions. Perhaps it was growing up under the shadow of the bomb, speculating with friends whether we had a future at all. 
The situations varied, but the underlying question remained the same. Are we humanly capable of living together without constantly falling into destructive conflict? Is peace a possibility or a pipe dream? And then at the end of that author's note, he says this. The problem we face goes beyond individual transactions and beyond dealing with difficult people. Our present challenge is to change the culture of conflict itself within our families, our workplaces, our communities, and our world. It is to create a culture where even the most serious disputes are handled on the basis not of force and coercion, but of mutual interest and coexistence. Far from eliminating differences, our challenge is to make the world safe for differences. Pretty hard to argue with that, unless you actually believe fundamentally at the core of your being that might is right and there's only one winner and everybody else is a loser. In which case, the approach to conflict becomes very clear-cut. Bloody and perhaps fruitless, but very clear-cut. <laughs> right? So with that in mind, what I want to do is read us the rest of that Octavia Butler essay that I read the intro to a couple of weeks ago, um, which turns out to be a, 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 a substantial reflection on learning from the past. So that's, I'm just going to read this to you as she's written it, and then I'll come back with some, uh, some questions. So listen for the bits that feel like they stick for you. At the end, I'll start with the bits that stuck for me, uh, and we'll get to, in our conversation, what resonated for you, okay? So as you may recall, if you were here, you may not, and maybe you know Octavia Butler as an author, um, best known for her work as in science fiction or sort of near-future fiction, uh, in particular for some novels that deal with the devolution of American culture and society. Uh, and she, her, her big, her, her general time frame is she's talked about it as an author for that stuff is like 30 or 40 years in the future. But she talks about sort of the futility of trying to uh, know when things are going to happen in this as well. Writing novels about the future, she says, doesn't give me any special ability to foretell the future. But it does encourage me to use our past and present behaviors as guides to the kind of world we seem to be creating. The past, for example, is filled with repeating cycles of strength and weakness, wisdom and stupidity, empire and ashes. To study history is to study humanity. And to try to foretell the future without studying history is like trying to learn to read without bothering to learn the alphabet. When I was preparing to write Parable of the Talents, I needed to think about how a country might slide into fascism, something that America does in the talents. And maybe it's all obvious, but... Uh, it's important in hearing her well in this to remember that she is writing as an African-American uh, person and from that cultural um, perspective. So, she says, I reread The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. <laughs> Just that sentence, I reread The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, who does that? And other books on Nazi Germany. I was less interested in the fighting of World War II than in the pre-war story of how Germany changed as it suffered social and economic problems as Hitler and others bludgeoned and seduced, as the Germans responded to the bludgeoning and the seduction and to their own history, and as Hitler used that history to manipulate them. I wanted to understand the lies that people have to tell themselves when they either quietly or joyfully watch their neighbors mined, spirited away, killed. 
Different versions of this horror have happened again and again in history. They're still happening in places like Rwanda, Bosnia, Kosovo, and East Timor. If she was writing this today, of course, I'm sure she would include the Middle East. Wherever one group of people permits its leaders to convince them that for their own protection, for the safety of their families and the security of their country, they must get their enemies, those alien others who until now were their neighbors. It's easy enough to spot this horror when it happens elsewhere in the world or elsewhere in time, but if we are to spot it here at home, to spot it before it can grow and do its worst, we must pay more attention to history. This came home to me a few years ago when I lived across the street from a 15-year-old girl whose grandfather asked me to help her with her homework. The girl was doing a report on a man who had fled Europe during the 1930s because of some people called, she hesitated and then pronounced a word that was clearly unfamiliar to her, the Nazis? And it took me a moment to realize that she meant the Nazis and that she knew absolutely nothing about them. We forget history at our peril. And I'm going to read you her subtitles for these sections because they're sort of the, the benchmark for each one. So this little chunk is uh, called Respect the Law of Consequences. And these are sort of her guidelines, her big themes in how we should pay attention as we think our way about into what might happen. Just recently I complained to my doctor that the medicine he prescribed had a very annoying side effect. I can give you something to counteract that, my doctor said. A medicine to counteract the effects of another medicine, I asked. He nodded. It will be more comfortable for you. I began to backpedal. I hate to take medicine. The problem isn't that bad, I said. I can deal with it. You don't have to worry, my doctor said. The second medication works and there are no side effects. That stopped me. It made me absolutely certain that I didn't want the second medicine. I realized that I didn't believe there were any medications that had no side effects. In fact, I don't believe we can do anything at all without side effects, also known as unintended consequences. Those consequences may be beneficial or harmful. They may be too slight to matter, or they may be worth the risk because the potential benefits are great, but the consequences are always there. In the parable of the sower, my character put it this way, quote, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. That is, by the way, sort of the pivotal truth of the religion that gets founded over the course of the parable of the sower, quite consciously. It's fascinating. Anyway, so that's respect the law of consequences. Second section is called be aware of your perspective. How many combinations of unintended consequences and human reactions to them does it take to detour us into a future that seems to defy any obvious trend? Not many. That's why predicting the future accurately is so difficult. Some of the most mistaken predictions I've seen are of the straight line variety. That's the kind that ignores the inevitability of unintended consequences ignores our often less than logical reactions to them, and simply says, in the future, we will have more and more of whatever's holding our attention right now. If we're in a period of prosperity, then in the future, prosperity it will be. If we're in a period of recession, we're doomed to even greater distress. Of course, predicting an impossible state of permanent prosperity may well be an act of fear and superstitious hope, rather than an act of unimaginative straight-line thinking. 
and predicting doom in difficult times may have more to do with the sorrow and depression of the moment than with any real insight into future possibilities. Superstition, depression, and fear play major roles in our efforts at prediction. It's also true that where we stand determines what we're able to see. Where I stood when I began to pay attention to space travel certainly influenced what I saw. I followed the space race of the late 1950s and the 1960s, not because it was a race, but because it was taking us away from the Earth, away from home, a way to investigate the mysteries of the universe, and I, I thought, to find new homes for humanity out there. This appealed to me, at least in part, because I was in my teens and beginning to think of leaving my mother's house and investigating the mysteries of my own adulthood. Apollo 11 reached the moon in July 1969. I had already left home by then, and I believed I was watching humanity leave home. I assumed that we would go on to establish lunar colonies and eventually send people to Mars. We probably will do those things someday, but I never imagined that it would take as long as it has. Moral? Wishful thinking is no more help in predicting the future than fear, superstition, or depression. And the last section is called Count on the Surprises. I was speaking to a group of college students not long ago, and I mentioned the fear we'd once had of nuclear war with the Soviet Union. The kids I was talking to were born around 1980, and one of them spoke up to say that she had never worried about nuclear war. She never believed that such a thing could possibly happen. She thought the whole idea was nonsense. She could not imagine that during the Cold War days of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, no one would have dared to predict a peaceful resolution in the 90s. I remembered air raid drills when I was in elementary school, how we knelt heads down against the corridor walls with our bare hands, supposedly protecting our bare necks, hoping that if nuclear war ever happened, Los Angeles would be spared. But the threat of nuclear war is gone, at least for the present, because to our surprise, our main rival, the Soviet Union, dissolved itself. No matter how hard we try to foresee the future, there are always these surprises. The only safe prediction is that there always will be. So, (laughs) why try to predict the future at all, if it's so difficult, so nearly impossible? Because making predictions is one way to give warning when we see ourselves drifting in dangerous directions. Because prediction is a useful way of pointing out safer, wiser courses. Because most of all, our tomorrow is the child of our today. Through thought and deed, we exert a great deal of influence over this child, even though we can't control it absolutely. Best to think about it, though. Best to try to shape it into something good best to do that for any child. All right. I mean, lots of wisdom in there. Lots of good perspective, I think, uh, of its time, of course, as anything any of us would put to paper would be. Let me point out a couple of things that that I sort of felt like might be starting points for our discussion. Uh, Let me also just say that if you're listening to this by podcast, I'm going to mention these and then I'm going to end the recording um, because nobody in the room here live signed on to have their immediate responsive thoughts to this broadcast. But uh, if you're listening to this and you want to have a conversation about it, you're on the website already. You know how to find me. I'd be delighted about that. So some thoughts. When she's talking about learning from the past, she says this. She's talking about 
wanting to understand the lies that people have to tell themselves when they either quietly or joyfully watch their neighbors' minds spirited, killed, and how different versions of this horror have happened again and again in history. I had occasion this past week to uh, spend a few days with a group of folks who serve uh, a large First Nations community in Ontario as a health, uh, health agency. And one of the people um, in that team that I was working with uh, is from Jordan. Young guy, early 30s, grew up in Jordan, so adjacent to this conflict geographically, like, uh, more like sandwiched in this conflict in some ways geographically. Uh, grew up there, his, his now wife, who is also of Palestinian Arab descent, grew up in Canada, came to visit, fell in love, got married, had a kid, some things went sideways in Jordan for them, business-wise, they came to Canada, been here for, I think, about six years at this point, and are raising their family here. So, all that's a little context. We had some fascinating conversations, as you can imagine, about the current conflict. And one of the things that this person said to me several times, and with, they were a very expressive, very passionate person, and this was something I was aware of because of the time that I spent in Ramallah, where I spent about a month, when it, uh, at the point where it was regarded as occupied by Israel, which is still a fair definition. Um, but I wasn't living with the Israelis there. I was living with the Palestinian Arab community there. One of the things I came home from there feeling aware of that I hadn't been before was how the intractability of this conflict is a short version of the history of those peoples. That if we back the history truck up, not terribly far, I mean hundreds of years, but not thousands, and, and as this Jordanian young man pointed out without any prompt from me, we were, we were neighbors before we were enemies. We married one another, Jews, Christian, Arab, right? Like it just, it, this was a very blended working together in this part of the world culture long before it was one of enmity and division, and arguably more substantially in terms of its duration. But that's not how it is now. So how does this happen, right? What, what, what kinds of lies do we have to tell ourselves so we can either quietly or joyfully watch our neighbors' mind spirited killed? People who were once our neighbors becoming this other who must just be done away with. To be clear, I'm not interested in this conversation being one about who's right or wrong in the current conflict. Uh, if you feel like that's what you really are compelled to speak about, I don't want to place a... a, a rule about that in our conversation. I just do not think that that's liable to be the most productive part of the conversation for us today, given the themes that we're working with. I don't think there's any good guy in this conversation, uh, that conflict at the moment. It's, nobody's got clean hands in that one. It's a mess, full stop. But what sorts of things, and again, we don't need to speak to lies people in the current conflict are believing, because in the end, we have relatively little influence over that conflict. I mean, if you know something I don't, about your influence there, I'd be curious to have that conversation. But I think most of us feel a bit helpless about it. We can, we can mourn. We can pray if we're a prayer. We can try to have fruitful conversations with people whose vantage points are different than ours to inform ourselves and to be neighbors even though there are things that might divide us here and so on. But I feel like what I want to explore around that part of what Butler has reminded of, us of this morning is this question, what sorts of lies... What sorts of lies do we need to believe to get to that place? So I wanted us to talk a little bit about that. What kind of lies do we need to believe? I wanted us to jump in a little bit, and wherever we go from these we go, but as a prompt, 
Uh, I'd be interested to have us have some conversation about Butler's idea that all we touch we change and where she arrives in that, that the only lasting truth is change. And so if we're looking for something eternal, if you will, something that doesn't change, it's the truth that what we, when we touch things, we change them, and then that changes us, which she wraps up by saying God is change, so the immutable reality, the unchangeable thing is change. Uh, so that idea. And, uh, and I wanted to touch base in our conversation a little bit, if we have time, on this idea that wishful thinking is no more help in predicting the future than fear, superstition, or depression and in particular to reflect a little bit on what some of our fears or superstitions or even the things that make us deeply sad or depressed might be that we then turn into wishful thinking in an attempt to sort of ameliorate the challenge of being in those kind of spaces. Now, if you're joining us online, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to turn this into a discussion on this end. So, thanks. Bye for now.